Good afternoon. Um, our text this morning is going to be, this afternoon, sorry, is going to be from Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. If you'll turn there in your Bibles or look in your bulletins where it's printed. And uh, I'll read it and then we'll get into it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, Write your law onto our hearts as you have promised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite novels of all time is a science fiction novel called Dune by Frank Herbert. If you haven't read it, it's been made into uh, a couple of pretty bad movies and TV shows, but it's also being made into a a new movie, which I have hopes for. Uh, It's it's a very unique novel. It combines uh, a lot of the familiar science fiction themes like starships and galaxy-spanning civilizations with uh, high fantasy elements like feudalism and magic. The main character of the novel, Paul Atreides, is the only son of his noble house, and he's expected to be a great leader of men when he becomes of age. He's trained in many things. He's trained in diplomacy. He's trained in um, all the latest scholarship, but he's also trained to fight. He's trained in knife fighting. His instructor, Gurney Halleck, at the beginning of the novel, approaches him for a training session. And um, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read part of the novel for you here. What happens is, is that Gurney beats Paul easily because his mind is not focused. I should whip your backside for such carelessness, Halleck said. He lifted a naked kindle from the table and held it up. A kindle is a knife. This, in the hand of an enemy, can let out your life's blood. You're an apt pupil, none better, 
But I've warned you that not even in play do you let a man inside your guard with death in his hand. I guess I'm not in the mood for it today, Paul said. Mood! Halleck's voice betrayed his outrage, even though through the shield's filtering. What has mood to do with it? You fight when the necessity arises, no matter the mood. Mood's a thing for cattle, or making love, or playing to balisette. It is not for fighting. See, Gurney understood the stakes of the fight. Paul was something, someone who could face assassination at any time. And in fact, later on in the book, there is an assassination attempt on his life. And he survives it due to the skills that he's learned. Even though all seemed peaceful, danger lurked just beyond. Brothers and sisters, despite the events of this last year, I think you will agree with me that we live in the most comfortable and peaceful society the world has ever known. We have access to conveniences that most human beings in the past would have never imagined having. It would be so easy and so understandable for us to be lulled into a sense of complacency. Or if we're not feeling that peace, maybe if we just lived in the right zip code, if we had enough in our retirement accounts, if we ensure that our children are enrolled at the right schools, then maybe we'll have that peace. Brothers and sisters, that is not the way we achieve peace. We are at war, all of us. That's what the Apostle Paul says in our text today. For some of us, when we hear the term spiritual warfare, we think this is uh, something for advanced Christians, uh, people that have attained a certain level of holiness and spirituality and sensitivity to the things of the Spirit, and that most of us are just regular Christians that are just, you know, struggling to get by every day. This, is, this isn't our fight, but nowhere in our text, nowhere in the book of Ephesians does Paul separate the church into the spiritual haves and have-nots. In fact, he says in Ephesians 4.1, we have all been made one in Christ, and so we are all called to live lives worthy of the calling that we have received. And one of those, one of the ways that we live lives worthy of that calling is doing battle with the devil. In verse 12 of our text, Paul uses the word struggle to describe describe this. We're in a struggle. And this word struggle literally uh, refers to wrestling, to, to grappling. And if you've ever wrestled with somebody, if you've ever you know, done jujitsu or anything like that, you know how strenuous, how visceral, how exhausting it is. You smell the other person's uh, sweat. It's on your body. War is not a game. It has lethal consequences for those caught unprepared. If you don't have the right training, equipment, mindset, and intelligence, you will not succeed. Yet the good news is that we have a warrior savior who has already achieved the decisive victory over the enemy 
And He's empowering us to share in His victory. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today, that because He's empowered us, we are called to stand firm in the fight. To stand firm in the fight. That's the big idea that I want you to walk away with. And we're going to unpack this in three points. First, know your enemy. Second, equip yourself in Jesus. And third, fight the good fight together. So first, know your enemy. I'm going to begin in the second half of verse 11, and we'll we'll revisit verse 10 uh, in a bit. Uh, In the second half of verse 11, Paul says that the reason we're putting on the armor of God is so we may stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul identifies who we are called to stand against. And in verse 12, he adds further clarification that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against things that we can see, people. It's against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we need to understand who the devil is, who these spiritual authorities uh, and powers that are associated with him are. It's, I think it's, this is difficult for us as Westerners to really, to really grasp, is it not? We have the, the trappings of science and technology. We have uh, explanations for every physical phenomenon in the real world. We can characterize the COVID-19 virus down to the very, its very genetic makeup and describe its mechanism of attack. We can tame our physical world we have portable devices that grant us instant access to information at the swipe of a, a finger. The science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke was fond of saying that any sufficiently advanced technology was indistinguishable from magic. And no doubt if we handed an iPhone to a caveman from 10,000 BC, he would conclude it was some kind of magical artifact invented by the gods. But we know better, don't we? And because of that sort of attitude that we have, that we've eliminated all kinds of supernatural explanations, we go back to our Bibles and we come across texts like this and we'll demythologize them. We'll explain them away in light of things that we can see and understand. Uh, some commentators have done this. They've said that, you know, this, this, we're not talking about a literal devil and literal demons that follow him here. We're talking about, uh, Paul is talking about certain socio-political structures of human society. And for some, we can find the explanation for injustice and suffering as the remnant of racist institutions and racist laws. For some others, we, we see the rising tide of secularization and, and godlessness, and we blame it on uh, liberal Ivy League teaching and uh, biased media. But there's something going on underneath the surface of all of this. I'm not saying that none of the things I just talked about are, are not legitimate and true concerns, but they are not the root cause of it all. 
The Bible does not flinch away from a supernatural universe populated by both visible and invisible beings. In Acts, we read about Paul's journeys in Ephesus, the very city that this letter is addressed to. In Acts uh, 17, we read about an account where there's seven Jewish exorcists, and they're not, they're not Christians, and they see Paul casting out demons uh, in, in the name of Christ. And they say, oh yeah, we can do that too. They, they go around, they try to cast out a demon by just invoking Jesus' name as a magic formula. And I'll just read this from the text for you. This is Acts 17, 15 to 19. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and it found it came out to 50,000 pieces of silver. See, brothers and sisters, that's the, that's the context of, of Ephesians. Paul is now confronting in his letter what he had already confronted personally in his ministry at Ephesus. He didn't go to Ephesus and comment on how unjust and the society was and how cruel it was. He confronted the demonic He confronted the idolatry. A few days ago, I um, brought my kids to Barnes and Noble, and while I was browsing, I came across the self-improvement section of the bookstore and found all these books on on witchcraft, sorcery, magic. As our society has increasingly rejected Christianity, new aberrant spiritualities have risen to fill the void. See, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are all created to worship. The question is not whether or not you will worship, but who you're going to worship. But you might say to me, well, I don't you know, mess around with Ouija boards or astrology or fortune-telling, right? So where's the devil for me? Friends, remember that the devil disguises himself in order to do his work. In the garden, he took the form of a talking serpent because it suited his needs. In different cultures around the world, he may take the form of local gods and goddesses. And in our culture, he takes other forms that are convenient for his purpose. After all, what is the mutilation of healthy children in the name of transgender ideology? Anything other than satanic. Or the denial of the existence of God as a hallmark of intelligence and reasonableness. Doesn't Satan take great pleasure in the exaltation of sexual sin, so much so that we have a whole month of the year dedicated to it now, just like a liturgy? C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters wrote this, 
concerning the demonic. He said this of the, of the modern world, The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not done even in concentration camps and labor camps. In those, we see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warm, and well-lit offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell, this is one of the demons speaking, is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the office of a thoroughly nasty business concern. You see, brothers and sisters, Satan is real. Demons are real. Satan in Ephesians uh, 2.2, he's referred to as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, Peter says that he is a prowling lion looking to devour someone. He hates God, and he hates you, and he wants to destroy you and everything you love. If there is anything evil and unjust in the world, you can be sure that Satan has a hand in it. But perhaps this is still a little abstract and impersonal. We're just talking about sort of uh, big, sweeping, ideological movements. And I want to bring us this closer to home for us. Notice right what comes right before our text. In Ephesians 5, Paul begins to unpack the implications of this great gospel that he's unfolded in the first three chapters. And he begins to apply it to the different realms of life. He begins to apply it to how husbands and wives ought to treat one another, how parents and children ought to relate, how servants and their masters ought to relate. You notice that? He is laying out the battlefield on which we do battle with Satan. See, it's not out there. It's not in some uh, mystical realm. It's in our homes. It's in our workplaces. It's in our marriages. When you have the argument with your spouse that gets so heated and so angry and you begin to question whether or not you should still even be married to that person. Is that not Satan at work? When we treat our children harshly and cause them to doubt whether or not we love them, and then that in turn causes them to doubt whether or not their Heavenly Father loves them, doesn't Satan advance his cause? Brothers and sisters, we don't need to look far for the evidence of Satan's existence. The very same devil that tempted our first parents to rebel against God is still lying to us and attempting to destroy us. And we face a formidable foe, just like we uh, confessed in our, that wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress, on earth is not his equal. But thanks be to God, he hasn't left us to face him alone. It leads me to my second point, equip yourself in Christ. 
In verse 10, back at the beginning of our uh, chapter, Paul issues this command to be strong. But it's not unqualified, be strong. This isn't a call for believers to simply muster up their own internal gumption and grit. No, we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Strength is not to be found within ourselves. Our resources are not sufficient. Strength is to be found in the Lord by putting on the whole armor of God. About ten years ago, I uh, visited my friend in New Hampshire. He was attending Dartmouth um, at the time, and he invited me up on a weekend, and he suggested that we go hike this, mount- this mountain in southern New Hampshire, Mount Cardigan. Uh, so, I'm born and raised in Chicago. I'm a city kid, uh, and especially at this time, I didn't know anything about mountains or hiking or even considering the season. This was... <laughs> A problem. So I drive up to the mountain, in the, uh, drive up the mountain to the parking lot where we were going to begin our hike from, and I, I show up in my uh, leather jacket, uninsulated, and uh, jeans, and uh, I was wearing construction boots because I didn't have hiking boots, so it was like heavy steel-toed construction boots. And my friend, he's, he's, he's there in a thin windbreaker and, and tennis shoes. And neither of us had any headgear, uh, walking sticks, nothing, gloves, nothing. We just start going up the mountain. And it gets colder and colder as we get up. Uh, and I'm, I'm surprised that there's like a foot of snow on the ground. It was October. I'm like, it doesn't snow in October. <laughs> And we get up above the tree line, and by this point, we really start to feel the wind and the cold. And we're about halfway up from the tree line to the summit when we decide that it's probably best if we turn back. It was the first time in my life that I felt a keen sense of my own mortality. I I didn't think we were going to freeze to death, but the thought did cross my mind that we might be found a few days later by, you know, park rangers frozen to death. Uh, Fortunately, two hikers who who passed by us lent us their uh, walking sticks to help us get down the mountain quickly. And, of course, these two hikers, a a father and daughter, were in all the right gear. They had, you know, parkas, uh, ski masks, gloves, poles, the whole gamut. And I learned that if you wear the wrong clothes to the wrong activity, you're going to incur some uh, consequences for that. And fortunately for us, those consequences aren't eternal. But the consequences are eternal when it comes to spiritual warfare. If we think we can fight the devil without the armor of God, we will doom ourselves to defeat, to death.
But if we find our strength in the Lord, we will find that it is the same strength that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 1.19 when he writes for us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him up from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Friends, we are not fighting a war where the outcome is in doubt where we're not sure what's going to happen at the end. Jesus has triumphed over the devil. He's disarmed him. He's he's removed his ability to accuse us by dying for our sins and rising for our justification. 1 John 4.4 Do you remember one of our memory verses from this past season? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Christians, putting on the armor of God is not merely a spiritual version of self-improvement. It doesn't mean in the first place to, to read our Bibles more, to pray more, to attend church, and to be a good Christian. Although those are good outworkings, good things of the gospel. None of us, by mere effort alone, can improve our spiritual states any more than we could save ourselves in the first place. And, of course, you might say to me, well, this this passage is full of commands that we have to do. Yes, they are. We do have to do them, but we do them in the Lord. We do them wearing the full armor of God. Let's, Let's unpack what that means. You may wonder if Paul is drawing upon the imagery of the Roman soldier as he writes this. Keep in mind, he's writing this letter from prison where he's probably chained up and he sees these Roman guards walking back and forth all the time. Maybe some of you have seen those little figurines of uh, centurions in, in Christian bookstores of all, these, all the virtues labeled on each piece of equipment. And that's what I always thought in the past when I've read this text, but I actually think Paul has something else in mind. He's evoking imagery from the Old Testament, specifically from the book of Isaiah. Uh, Ian Duguid writes in his devotional on this text this. He, He says, The belt of truth is the belt that girds the Messianic king. In Isaiah 11.5, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation come from the divine warrior's arsenal in Isaiah 59.17. The feet shod of gospel readiness are the feet of those who proclaim the arrival of Messiah's kingdom in Isaiah 52.7. God himself is a shield of faith as he describes himself in Genesis 15. And the sword of the spirit, the word of God, is the weapon wielded by the promised servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49.2. See, what Paul is doing, he is painting a picture of Jesus. He is putting together all these images that are fulfilled in Christ. And don't we see this borne out in his life? When he refutes Satan in the wilderness, he wielded the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, to deflect Satan's lies. He declares himself to be the way and the truth and the life. 
He always exhibits perfect faith. He never doubts his father for a second, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. He earns the perfect righteousness that we could never earn on our own by keeping his father's law all the days of his life. He achieves salvation for his people through the gospel of his death and resurrection on their behalf and brings about peace between us and God. Brothers and sisters, these pieces of armor belong to Jesus. The command to put on the whole armor in verse 11 uh, is the same verb he uses in Romans 13:14 when he says, we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. In Galatians 3:27, he says, we are baptized into Christ we, and we, are, we put him on in that baptism. In Ephesians 4:24, where we are called to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We grow in holiness and we do battle against the devil in the same way that we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. The minute that we begin boasting about our own achievements, we have chosen in effect to wear our own armor instead of the armor of God. Our sinful flesh is so adept at self-righteousness that we will use even doing good things like spiritual devotions and acts of kindness to fuel our own pride and sense of self-worth. But the bridegroom has graciously covered us with his robe and empowered us with his spirit to lay down our lives for his name, to take upon his yoke, and to bear his light and easy burden. Friends, when faced with the devil's temptations, don't ask, what would Jesus do? Meditate on what Jesus has already done for you. And realize that you share in his victory. Fight knowing that he has already won. We don't have to win the victory on our own. Our call is to stand, to endure, to run the race. But how do we stand? This leads me to my third point. We fight the good fight together. Paul, in verse 18, after instructing believers to take up all the armor of God, issues the final command that we should pray in the Spirit on all occasions of all kinds of prayers and requests. I know the SV says praying in the Spirit uh, could also be translated as a straight command, pray in the Spirit. Prayer is how we come to grips with the enemy. But notice Paul is careful to qualify this command. Not just pray, pray in the Spirit. Uh, So often in in our culture, if somebody suffers misfortune, other people will say to that person, oh, I'm sending my prayers, thoughts and prayers with you. But Christian prayer is not merely positive thinking, nor is it an appeal to karma or general spiritual sensibility. No, Christian prayer is directed towards the triune God. 
asking the Father for our needs in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some Christian traditions will interpret praying in the Spirit here as referring to some kind of speaking in tongues activity, perhaps. But I don't think that's actually what Paul has in mind here. Look at the immediate context of the verse. In verse 17, Paul defines the sword of the Spirit as the Word of God. So praying in the Spirit must mean praying according to the Word of God. That's why in the Reformed tradition, we have always prioritized prayer based particularly upon Scripture. If you're a member or a regular attendee or you, know, you went through our service today, you notice that our liturgy, our prayers are all taken from Scripture. God has graciously provided, particularly in His Psalms, but throughout the whole Bible, inspired words written by human beings addressed to Him to guide us as we also learn to talk to Him. John Calvin said this was God's version of, of baby talk to us. Just as we make these uh, noises to babies, and we coo, and we uh, just make babble at them, we're, we're teaching them we, how to talk. They're learning how to make sounds based upon watching our faces and hearing our voices, even if it's not words. In the same way, God is teaching us in His Scripture how to talk to Him. Paul goes on to say that we ought not only to pray in general, but to pray particularly for one another. Uh, And he includes even himself uh, in this request in verse 20. Right? He says, um, To that end, keep alert of all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, as those who have served in combat or played on a team sport will test. Armies and teams work together when they communicate, when they, when they play together. There's no such thing as the lone ranger Christian sallying forth to confront Satan alone. We need to be asking for prayer from each other and receiving prayer from each other. We have a, uh, a prayer request uh, system at, at our church that if you haven't used before, I invite you, don't be afraid to use it, to reach out, to talk to a friend in your struggle. Notice the Paul, that Paul also adds a command to be alert. Um, in, in verse... Seventeen, eighteen. I'm losing my place. It's in there. <laughs> Which this this uh, this command to be alert is in parallel to the command to keep praying for the Lord's people. See, good soldiers are not self-absorbed. They're not only focused on themselves. They're looking out for their battle buddies all the time. They're constantly keeping watch for the enemy's attacks. Sentries uh, in combat are always assigned in pairs in case one guy falls asleep or gets distracted. Christians are called to look out for one another, to look for the people that seem to be slipping through the cracks, who are on the outskirts, who are struggling and don't have, uh, haven't voiced their needs. 
After World War II ended, not, not all the Japanese soldiers in the Pacific surrendered all at once. I don't know if you're familiar with this. In fact, some of these men held out for decades after the final surrender. Hiro Onoda, one of the last soldiers to surrender, lived in the mountains of an island in the Philippines up until 1974 when he finally met another Japanese man who had been looking for him. Onoda, although happy to befriend his countrymen, refused to give himself up and return to Japan until his superior officer from the war issued him a direct command to do so. Imagine the life of this man over the 30 years after the war, living alone in a strange land, scavenging for his food, waiting uh, for a radio signal that would never come. Friend, perhaps you are here today and you're also holding out by yourself. You also think you are alone, that nobody else is going through what you're going through. That what you're dealing with is too shameful, too dark to bring to light. Come to Jesus. Receive the grace that he has for you in his body. You aren't alone because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and has also bound you to your brothers and sisters. I'd like to conclude by dwelling on one thing from this text that we haven't touched on yet. Notice in verse 13, Paul says that we are to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, we can stand our ground. See, this war is not going to last forever. The devil has an appointed time in which he can do his damage. He has a leash on which he is able to roam, but in the end, he will be dealt with. He and his minions will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus is going to return one day to vanquish him once and for all. The struggle that we endure, the flaming arrows that are being shot at us, will stop. Brothers and sisters, take heart in this. The outcome of the war is not in doubt. Many of you uh, can think in your minds, picture in your minds the famous photograph taken at the end of World War II on Victory Day, showing the returning sailor kissing his bow in Times Square. Well, the bridegroom is also going to return to kiss his bride and usher her into eternal, perfect communion between God and man. Until that day, stand firm. Stand firm in Christ's victory.